She has arrived. <laughs> On a pogo bounce. Pogo bounce. You know what? We got some big news. Yeah? Yeah. What is it? Unfortunately, I can't tell you. But it's amazing. Well, you can tell them, and I'll just plug my ears. Okay. Um, I did bring you something. Yeah. <laughs> is it true that you like to blow up balloons? <laughs> Do you want it to be true? <laughs> I, I'm doing research right now. I'd just like to know, is it true that you really love to blow up balloons? No, it's not true. Okay. <laughs> I can make it true, though. So would you rather I blow it up? Okay. I will blow up this balloon if you do something for me. <laughs> I want to blow up the balloon. <laughs> Is that clear full? No. Okay. Fussy. That's good. Is that full? That's good. Okay. Tie up some loose ends. Okay, so you're pretty happy that I did that for no, you. No, I actually I'm a little concerned. <laughs> okay. Now I'd like you to do something for me. Tell me to hold it? No, I'd like oh. you to blow up a balloon too. I did it for you. Make sure it's full. <laughs> okay. What's this? No. I'm watching. Yeah, I'll pick it up for you. <laughs> no, it's fine. Let's just leave it there. Okay. You just Enough teasing. Of the stuff. That is big tease. No, we do have some big news. And the big news is um, IST has a new home. That's big news. Yeah, and this is really big news. So IST is growing. It's been around for 35 years, and it's a wonderful place. A lot of you have studied IST or are studying. Some of you graduated. You sure did. Yes. But uh, this week, we were very fortunate to be able to acquire a new campus for IST. Wow. And one of the best parts is that it's right across the road. We are here at Kansas City Airport on a road called Ambassador Drive. And the new IST campus, you can't call it a building, can you? The new campus is right across the road. Yeah. And it's actually two buildings. And, uh, well, the best way to describe them is to show a video. Would that be OK? All right, let's visit the new, and, and by the way, look in the background and see if you can see this building that we're in right across the road. Okay, here we go.
It's over. What it's do you over. think? <laughs> so that's it. So we will now be able to handle a much larger student student body than we could before. And I, I believe that the International Academy of Science and their ISD University, which by the way, is the university that created Acellus, uh, the International Academy of Science students. And I, I just think it's a wonderful thing. And there is a wonderful member of our community that has chosen not to be recognized by name, so be anonymous, but made a very wonderful donation to help us acquire this wonderful facility. And uh, maybe many of you will someday come here and study. So it is exciting, isn't it? It is, it's, it's an amazing building, campus. Yes. <laughs> campus. We call it a campus because it's two buildings connected by a little lobby, and then right across the road is the Cellus building, and then next door we have two dorm buildings, so we have a little campus all right here together. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, for a school like us, this is really wonderful, thrilling news. And it's gonna mean a lot of good things, okay? So now, we need to get back to work, okay? okay. Uh, so Tobias told us about uh, Marconi, Italiano and the <laughs> radio waves and how they were able to transmit them. It's fascinating that in the earlier experiment that he talked about, an electric current was sent across a gap between two balls and there was a little spark. And when there is a spark, it does emit radio waves. And the radio waves could be picked up by another set of balls just a, a few inches away so you have a spark here, and it causes an induced spark over on the other side. And it, it's a, an amazing technology which leads to radio, television, communication, and so many things. Um, we talked about it last time about how if you have a magnet, and, you, and the magnet's creating a magnetic field, and if you have the magnetic field cut across the lines of, of wire, in this case coiled, so that you get lots of lines cut across that magnifies the effect. But even just one wire, if you, if you make the magnetic field cut across the wire, when I say cut across it, the wire's here, the magnetic field's moving, or if you hold the magnet still and move the wire, you get the same effect. It forces electrons to move down the wire, and electrons flowing down a wire is what we call electricity. Now, on this particular little coil, I have it hooked up to a meter. Let's see if we can see if we can generate any power. Here we go. There's the coil, and there's my little meter. Now, watch as I bounce this up and down. Can you see the electricity that I'm creating? So electricity is flowing through this wire because I'm pushing it with a magnet, and I'm using my Armstrong generator. <laughs> to move the magnet, and so the source of power the, that's generating this electricity is muscle power, which is because I was able to eat food that grew by solar power on the leaves, which means this is a solar power generator. <laughs> that is absolutely correct, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, sure absolutely. Okay, so this is induction. This is induction where a magnetic field induces a, a current. And the spark is also a form of induction. Now, 
it turns out there's some really interesting stories that need to be told about this. True stories. Okay. Yeah, science stories. We are into science. Science is remarkable. Uh, have you ever heard about the hydrogen car? <laughs> I have. Oh, yeah, the hydrogen car. So I was really into the hydrogen car, and as you know, for the science fair a few years ago, I converted uh, my father's Model A Ford to run on hydrogen. Before doing the Model A, I converted a lawnmower engine. That was the first hydrogen engine. And to my knowledge, it was the first in the world. It had one cylinder, one spark plug, and it ran pretty good after I finally got the kinks worked out. So then I jumped over to the Model A, which had four cylinders, so it had four spark plugs. Now, the way that a cylinder works, remember we've talked about this many times, uh, a piston pulls down the bottom of a chamber and it pulls in air and fuel. Then the piston compresses the fuel and air and then a spark plug ignites a fire which pushes the piston down fast and powers the engine, okay? Well, the problem that I had with my four-cylinder engine is that when I tried to start it, it would backfire. Fire would catch on in the intake mold manifold and have a big explosion and sometimes even blow the manifold off the engine. And so it was a real problem, and I was trying to figure out why in the world is it doing this? Why, why, why is it backfiring? The way it's supposed to work is there's a valve that has a camshaft that pushes a valve open so the air can come in with the fuel. And then, when it's down the bottom of a cycle, the valve's supposed to close. Then you compress it and ignite it, but the valve's closed so the fire can't go back into the intake manifold where there's more fuel. But unfortunately, somehow, the fire kept going through the intake valve. And then I realized that somehow it was getting ignited in the wrong cylinder at the wrong time. When I was firing one cylinder, the next cylinder would fire, and it was just in the intake mode with the valve open, so it blew up the whole intake manifold. And I tried very hard to find out what that was, and it turned out to be the very same thing Tobias was talking about. When uh, a spark, is fired to ignite a fuel charge inside an engine, you have to be able to get a spark. And to have a spark, you've got to have quite a bit of power. In an engine, we get the power from the battery to get it started, and then we have a generator, which is a little thing like this, magnet spinning inside of a coil, of a magnetic field, a coil spinning inside that generates electricity. In fact, it just so happens I brought a generator. And if you look at this close, I can turn this a little bit, and you can see there is a little coil of copper around this generator. Can you see that? That coil of copper wire just wrapped around there. And it's mounted in such a way that when I turn this crank, there's a nice rubber band here. So as the crank turns, it makes it spin. Okay? And then this red and blue up here is actually a magnet. So I have a coil spinning inside a magnetic field, and that's how you generate electricity. That's how you generate power on an engine to recharge the battery and to power the spark plug, okay? By the way, we should try this if we can generate power. How can we tell if it's generating power? Well, we flip it over, 
And up here we have two LEDs, a red LED and a green LED. You see them there? And if I'm actually generating power, seems like those ought to light up. Can you see that LED lighting up? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was making light. I mean, I was making electricity at the speed of light. How's that? <laughs> but you notice, it was only red. All I have is red light. But if I turn the handle the other direction, then I get green. Red, green. Because I'm going through the field in the other direction, so it's pushing electrons the other way. And it turns out these LEDs are one-way doors. Remember rectifiers? Don't let electricity go through one way. So we have one wired one way and the other one flip so they can only go through one direction and it just shows you which way it's going. So that's how it all works, right? Well, neat. this electricity in a car then goes into a coil like this one and then when the points close in the engine, the points are a little switch that's hooked up to the rotation of the engine and they open and close at just the right time to fire the spark when the piston's all the way up. And so you get a spark fire and the fire takes off. Well, if you have multiple cylinders, you want them to fire at different times. So you have them on a crankshaft that has offsets and they fire at different times. But you only have one set of points. And, and I might add that points and this kind of ignition system is is older days. Nowadays we have some newer electronic ignition systems that work much better. But back in the day, <laughs> and not too far along, too long ago, I mean Model A started this out. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating how all the world connects together. Henry Ford was the guy that really popularized the automobile. And he did it with the Model T, and then he did it with the Model A. And he made a car affordable so a lot of people could have them. Before that, they were just a real, real big luxury item. And who was Henry Ford's close friend and associate? Right, Thomas Edison. Yeah. They used to go fishing together, they remember? Yep. Yeah. And uh, when Mr. Ford was developing his engine, he needed this affordable ignition system. And so he turned to a guy named Boss Kettering from Ohio, from Dayton, Ohio. Boss Kettering was the one that invented the whole ignition system for the for the Ford automobiles. And you say, well, so, so, so. Well, I didn't get to know Boss Kettering, but he's a very close friend of Henry Ford's. When I started doing my research on hydrogen, and I got into the university and I needed some funding to get things started, the Kettering Foundation, that was started by Boss Kettering back in Dayton, Ohio, gave him my very first grant. Fun. So it's all connected, it see all connected. how that all works together. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, getting back on point, so the, the contacts, the little switch inside the distributor would actually, it sparks when they disconnect, they would open, it causes a spark, the coil would shoot the spark out, and here's something I think is kind of interesting to understand. You have a spark coming into the middle of a cap. A cap is just a lid that goes on a distributor. So we call it a distributor cap. Okay. Is this getting too complicated? No, no, it isn't. No. It's very simple. Imagine a coil like this with a wire coming out that has the spark in it. Okay. 
And if you just have one cylinder, you just hook it up to the spark plug. But if you have four, then it's got to go to this spark plug, then this one, then this one, this one. And so what do you do? You bring the wire up into the middle of the cap. And underneath, on the distributor, you've got this arm turning around with a piece of metal so it would hit each of the spark plugs in their turn. That's what a distributor cap does. It distributes who gets the spark now. And so the spark would fire to the right cylinder that's all ready to create power. But as the electricity would go through that wire, we would have an induced spark in the wrong wires. And that's exactly what they saw. He put a spark here, and he got one over there. This one's bigger. That one's littler. But it's actually a spark that is induced or created by inductance to the other wire. And in my case, it caused catastrophic problems. And it was really confusing to me at first because this engine ran great on gasoline, put on hydrogen, and it just backfired, backfired, backfired. And then pretty soon, I, I discovered that little spark, and I monitored it, and I could see it. It was sparking at the wrong time with this little teeny spark. But why would it work on gasoline? That spark should make the gasoline backfire too, and it didn't. And so I scratched my chin. <laughs> you know, when you're fighting a problem like that, it, it's like a real mystery. It's, it can even be discouraging. Why? Does anybody know why? Why would it work on gasoline but not on hydrogen? So the spark was going down the right wire, and the wrong wire was getting an inducted spark, which would ignite the cylinder that was during the intake cycle, and it'd all blow up. Why? Anybody know? Anybody have a speculation? Come on, you great minds. <laughs> Somebody's got to have it. Here it comes, Mark. Because hydrogen's easier to light. Yeah. He said, you should turn your mic up. Well, you don't have a mic. Well, just keep working. You'll get one. He said, because hydrogen's easier to light. What does that mean? He's absolutely right, isn't he? Hydrogen. When you ignite a mixture of fuel and air, you do it with a fire. Fire, and in this case, the spark is a fire. But a spark has to be strong enough that it can actually ignite the fuel. Now, some chemists in the room would say, yeah, you've got to overcome the threshold energy for ignition. There has to be a certain amount of ignition. And the amount of energy you need to start gasoline burning is 10 times more than you need to start hydrogen burning. So a little teeny spark will ignite hydrogen, but it won't ignite gasoline. And so Kettering didn't need to worry about it because Ford didn't worry about it because his engine didn't worry about it. But I worried about it, <laughs> and I had a real problem. How do I keep that spark from forming there? Because I can't have a multi-cylinder engine if there's going to be an induced spark. And I tried everything. First thing I did is I put a shielded cable on the spark plugs so that 
the power go down the center shield, but the outside would stop the induction, and it still did it. And I found out that the inside conductor would induce to the outside conductor, and it would still create an induced spark. So I grounded one side of the, of the shield. That helped, but it still did it. It was just weaker, but it was still enough to ignite hydrogen. This, this could completely stop my whole hydrogen car project. Anybody have another idea? How can I stop it? Mark figured out why it's doing it. How do I get rid of that spark? I worked on this for almost a year. Oh. Mm -hmm. If I'd been smarter, I would have known the first day. <laughs> but it's really an interesting little answer. And there's actually an important reason why I think you want to understand this. In order for a spark to occur, there has to be a hole between two wires. So the electricity has to jump from one wire to the other. In an ignition system, we call that the spark gap. It's the gap that the spark has to jump through. When you change the spark plugs in your engine, you get a micrometer and you set the spacing of the gap just right for gasoline. It's important to be set right. The books didn't say what gap to use for hydrogen because <laughs> nobody did that. So I just put them in like gasoline. Well, it turns out something interesting happens. Electricity won't go through air because air's not a conductor. And yet someone's gonna say, wait a minute, I saw lightning. Lightning was electricity going right through air. Well, air is not a conductor, but if you excite air and ionize it, which means you excite the electrons to an outer shell, then it is a conductor. And to get it to ionize, you need to have a high voltage. When you look at a cloud and it's up there and you've got all those particles whipping around generating potential energy, generating voltage, the lightning doesn't strike at first because the voltage isn't high enough to ionize the air. When it finally gets enough voltage to ionize the air all the way to ground, then, pss, then you get your discharge. And once a path is ionized, then all of the power goes shooting down. We've seen those films where the lightning's coming down, trying to find its way to ground, it's going like this, and then one finally reaches all the way to ground, and you have an ionized path between the cloud and the ground, and then all the power goes through that one path. And so in the case of an engine, the voltage from the, from the coil comes down the wire and the voltage starts rising on the spark plug, but the air in there won't conduct, so it doesn't, it doesn't spark yet. So it rises more, and it rises more. Why does it rise more? Because the power's trying to get out of that coil, but it can't because there's no path to ground. And finally, when the voltage gets high enough, it finally ionizes the air and shorts out, and you get a spark. So guess what I had to do to make my engine run? I had to take my spark plugs out and I narrowed the gap. 
and made it really narrow. By making the gap narrow, it ionized at a much lower voltage. And with less voltage on the wire, it didn't make such an induced signal in the wrong wire. And the problem went away. All I had to do was reduce the gap. Now, when I tried to run that engine on gasoline with the gap that narrow, it ran very poorly because there wasn't enough energy to ignite gasoline. Gasoline is a big old molecule, and to ignite it, it has to be broken up, and it takes a lot of energy to ignite it. Hydrogen is just a cute little molecule. <laughs> doesn't take hardly energy to ignite it. It's true. <laughs> I believe you. You don't believe me? I do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> just remember, I'm getting, I'm getting near a balloon over there. Just right? remember, I've got a video. Oh, video? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we in in this country we have the U.S. mail. I have black mail. <laughs> okay, behave. I have a video all queued up that. Uh, it's edgy. Yeah, it's a video that um, they're wanting to know if we should use it in our ESP, in our emotional social course, because it's a little edgy. Question? <laughs> and so, you know, you just better behave. I just better okay. behave. So there's right. a little bit more that I'd like to say about yeah, this, unless a you have a question. Just, you have a question. This is kind of getting into some stuff that maybe is a little bit hard to keep up with. I hope most of you are understanding it because this idea of a wire spinning inside of a, close to a magnet, inside a magnetic field, is really an important phenomena that drives so much that happens in our world. And like Tobias was saying tonight, if you can see something that's been discovered, then maybe you can figure out a better way to use it. And so much of invention, especially the kind of invention that I specialize in, is taking some scientist's discovery of a basic concept and figuring out what we could do with it. And that is really a fun way to invent. Notice this. Oh, yeah. Magnets. That's <laughs> pretty fun. Yeah, anyway. You tried that before, hadn't you? I have tried that before, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Going back, though, to, um, to induction and, and radio waves, um, it's interesting that you could make a radio wave jump to the other side, and eventually they put an antenna on it, and when the antenna got long and they had the antenna on both ends, then they could send it two miles and then they could send it across the channel. But here's something that it's really important to know if you're going to invent things that have anything to do with radio waves. And we ran into it last week. We were putting up a gate out here at the entrance to the building. And the idea is, you know, it's a security gate. It's kind of a nice thing to have, but sometimes I like to get through. So I have, I have this little transmitter, garage door opener. You push that, and the gate's supposed to open. And I pulled up the gate, and I pushed it, and it didn't open. What? Right, Josh? <laughs> this, this is not too neat. And so I got out and went around and 
lucky for me, one of our fine graduates was there <laughs> still tweaking it up, and I says, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so um, Josh is one of the finest machinists we have, and mm -hmm. he's the guy that runs the 3D printer, which is really exciting. But uh, there was a little receiver that's supposed to get the radio wave I'm transmitting with my garage door opener, and I went around and looked at it, and it had a little antenna hanging out of it, but the antenna was twisted around and taped in place. And what it did is it changed the length of the antenna coming out of the module. Mm -hmm. Antennas have to be exactly the right length for the frequency that they're running. When they started out, they just make the antenna longer and longer and longer, and it seemed to work better, seemed to work better. But what we eventually found out is that there is a thing in radio waves called wavelength. And um, <laughs> wavelength, we're about a meter, wavelength of a meter. Now, what does it mean? Radio waves travel through space at about the same speed as light. And that's really fast. What, 13 minutes you can be the sun? It's very, very fast. Uh, but there are different frequencies of radio waves. When you tune your dial, you're tuning to different frequencies. And that means that the wave is going up and down faster or slower. We call that the frequency. And so radio waves are within a certain wave. Remember we talked about direct current in a wall is 60 cycles a second. Radio waves, depending on the frequency, are much, much, much faster. And as you go across the dial, they're going up and down at different speeds. But they always travel at the same speed. So if a wave goes up and goes down, how far does it travel before it gets through a complete wave? And that's called a wavelength. So high frequency, the wavelength's slower because it hasn't, it's going to the speed of light, but it hasn't had time to go very far. Whereas slow ones are longer wavelengths. The antenna, to be able to transmit a wave well, has to be exactly the length of the wavelength you're transmitting. And some radio stations, especially AM stations, have really tall towers because they're down around 550 on the dial or 600, and they're really tall. And you get up around 1400, 1450, they're much shorter. Now they do a little trick. So that's a little confusing. That is, if you can't afford to build a tower that's a full wavelength, you can make it exactly half a wavelength, and it still works pretty good. And it even works pretty good if you put a quarter wavelength. But if you go a little bit in between, it just doesn't work. You have to have the antenna tuned for the frequency that you're, you're transmitting. And so when we pulled the antenna out, Josh, and, and got it back to the right wavelength. And it just changed the length by less than an inch, then it worked. And so you have to have the antenna matched. If they'd known that, they'd been able to send waves across the ocean a lot sooner. And they had to learn how to tune those antennas to the frequency. And so that's a lot of theory we're whipping through pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Do you think they all got it? I think they got I think they the didn't. I don't think they got the wavelength thing. Okay, Wavelength is really a good thing to understand. And so if, you, if, if we could take that one more time, I, I'd really like everybody to understand wavelength. Mm 
if you have something that is traveling at the speed of light, it goes as fast as light does. And it's a wave, so it's going up and down, up and down, up and down. And it goes up and downs at different speeds depending on what frequency you're broadcasting on. Different radios oscillate at different speeds so that people can tune in the different channels, right? Well, how fast it's going up and down is kind of like a timer. So like you could say, in one thousandth of a second, we go up and down and we do a full cycle. We're back at the same zero. Then we go up and down again in the next thousandth of a second. Well, how far will light go in a thousandth of a second? Well, it'll go about that far. So if in a thousandth of a second we do a full cycle, we go about that far, that would be our wavelength. Now, another wave that's going up and down slower, it takes it two thousandths of a second to do a clear up and a clear down, right? But light would have gone twice as far. So that means the wavelength is twice long. So if you could see those waves, it looks like it goes up like that, whereas the other one goes like this. Hmm. And then you get into things like FM, and the waves are really, really short. An FM antenna isn't a great big tower sticking halfway up to the stars. It's just a little thing to mount on the side of a pole because the frequency is so much higher. And you have to have that frequency right. When I was doing ham radio and I was trying to transmit on a certain frequency, I'd have to cut a wire to exactly the right length to get it to send out a good signal to be able to talk to people around the wall. And what about that thing? Remember, they didn't think that they would be able to broadcast across the ocean because of the curvature of the Earth. Mm -hmm. They thought it'll, it'll just go out in space. Why did it work? because it bounced off the ionosphere. It hits the ionosphere and reflects back down. And some days it does better than others, depending on the frequency. So there's a lot of neat technology in radio. And for some of you that we got a little more technical tonight, maybe than you were ready for, I apologize. For those of you <laughs> that are just finishing AP chemistry, and I wasn't advanced enough for you, I apologize too, but at least, you know. You can explain it to your, your little brother or sister there how that all works. But technology is based on a lot of principles. And every time that you understand a principle, you're empowered. We're right here at the airport. And so as I'm working, I hear every time a jet takes off, if, if the winds are coming the right direction, they take off right over our building. And I love hearing the jets take off. That's a car. Anyway, <laughs> when I was a college student uh, and I was taking courses in mechanical engineering, one of the things we studied was jet engines. Jet engines. Before jet engines, we powered our, all of our airplanes with piston engines, and they couldn't go nearly as fast. And then they came up with jet engines and it launched the airline Airliners is a very popular means of travel and a lot of neat things. And so as an engineering student, they taught us, how do you calculate the efficiency of a jet engine? How does this happen? How does that happen? And a jet engine is really very, very simple. You have a tube. And down on one end of the tube, you have a fan. And the fan spins 
and it pushes air into the tube. And then you spray fuel into the tube and it comes out the other side. And in most simplistic term, that's all there is to it. But actually, they have one fan pushing it in, then they have another fan turning the other direction, pushing it in with higher pressure, and so those fans are called compressors. And in a jet engine, jet turbine, they have several stages, several fans all compressing the air into the combustion portion of the jet. And then they squirt the fuel in and burn it, and when the fuel burns, it, gets, it makes the air hot, it expands, and comes shooting out the back. Well, here's my question. I was an engineering student. I learned how to do the formulas. I passed the exam, but I couldn't understand how that engine worked because it seemed to me that if you compress all of the air into this chamber and then you squirt in the fuel and ignite it and it really expands, it seems like it go out the front and the back. And so why do the engines go forward? And I wrestled with that, and I wrestled with that, and then I finally forgot, and I don't understand that. <laughs> I won't be making any jet engines anytime soon. <laughs> and we actually got the point where they wanted to run an airline on hydrogen. And so Pratt Whitney, that makes jet engines, invited Willis Hawkins and I to go there, and we worked with them on an experiment, and they actually converted the jet engine to run on hydrogen, and it was all good. And I still didn't quite understand how it worked. It did work, but why didn't it come out the other way? Well, I was sitting here at the Billings Tower, and these planes were going off, and every time they go off, I think of that jet engine and how it's pulling air in and coming out the other end. And then one day, I finally got it. And I now know why it goes through the engine instead of coming back out. It gets compressed, compressed, compressed. Then they stick in the fuel, and they ignite it. The fuel doesn't explode, it burns. And when it burns, it expands. But the pressure doesn't get higher than it was compressed coming in because it keeps squirting out the back, which is the easy path out. Now going out the back, they have some fans that are turbines. The gas going out turns those because that's what makes the ones in front turn. That's the way they power it. But all of a sudden, I realize the pressure doesn't go up. It gets compressed by the compressors, it burns, and it expands out the back, and so I finally have peace of jet mind. <laughs> that's but you good. know, that's a concept that I waited a lot of years to finally get to make sense in my head. And once I got it, it just clicked. Every time I hear a jet, I smile. <laughs> I know how it's doing it. <laughs> and it's a pretty wonderful thing. Technology takes effort, and sometimes the darndest little concepts are hard for us to grasp. And I imagine all the other guys in my class got it, but I didn't until, what, 2,000 years later. <laughs> Studying, learning technology takes effort, and it comes in layers, and you have to earn it. But when you get it, it's worth it. I'm now trying to invent a new kind of jet engine. You know, I've got a lot of things I'm trying to invent. If I invent one out of a million things I'm trying, it's going to be pretty good. But uh, I just 
have to remind us every week that the knowledge that we're getting is empowering us to do really great things. And you hear about these scientists that came before us and what they did, and it is really amazing. And we are going to need the new solutions and technologies of the future. Uh, it's a science community's job to make sure that we have the technology to help society stay healthy, stay fed. Technology to be able to grow food quite often involves how do you plow the field, how do you plant it, how do you harvest. There are so many technologies that are so important to life. So study, study, study. And it is hard, but it's so rewarding when you get it. And every time you get something, the next thing gets easier and easier and pretty soon, who knows what you can do. What can you do? <laughs> Don't you do it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Unfortunately, you won't be here after when she does it. I probably will. She probably will. Mm -hmm. It's really been good having you with us today, and you too. And I will say that we do have this video, and I'm, I'm not going to show it to you because... I would ruin the excitement for when you enroll in this new version of the course. But she talks about spinning. And they cut to a, uh, a video of her spinning. She's dancing. And they stuck it in this class. And they asked me, is this legal to put a picture of her dancing in her class? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Joseph decision to me. <laughs> awesome. I'm opting out on this one, Joseph. Okay. Thank you. We'll see you next time.